0: Thank you. I'm Patty. I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful to be sober. I'm especially grateful to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been having a lot of fun up until now. <laughs> I'd like to thank um, Kathy and John for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to participate in my recovery. I think a three-bypass, whatever that thing was, is kind of a weenie excuse to miss an AA meeting, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I'm sure Kathy will make John listen to the tapes. uh, I'm also really grateful to be here tonight. There's some people in this room that I really love that I haven't seen for a while. And it's just really nice to connect um, with people. My friend Lexi's here. And I'm just amazed at the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. You really clean up well. I was thinking, uh, I, uh, I got an invitation to my brother-in-law's birthday uh, last month, and it may not mean anything to any of you, but when I get invited to participate in anything in my family, I know that the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is absolutely unbelievable. I got this invitation that said, uh, my brother-in-law is not an alcoholic, and it said, uh, no need to bring a present, just bring your favorite six-pack of microbrew for Lauren. I don't know what a microbrew is. I figure it has something to do with alcohol because it comes in a six-pack. So I go to the liquor store and I ask the clerk what a microbrew is. Of course, I waited until nobody was in the liquor store. I didn't want anybody to hear me ask that question. And he took me over to the beer aisle. And I'm, I'm, geez, there's a lot of different kinds of beers anymore. And he points out the microbrews and he explains them to me. and, And I said, well, what's your favorite? Now I'm sure it was just a coincidence that his favorite was the most expensive. But (laughs) I took the liquor store clerk's favorite microbrew to my brother-in-law's birthday party, and my my one of my brothers is in a a musical group. It's not a band. In fact, the name of the group is not a band. And uh, (laughs) if you heard them play, you would agree it is not a band. Donnie, if you ever hear this tape, I think you're really wonderful and I don't care what they say about you, you sing Splendid. Um, You have to do that when when they're taping it because you never know where the tape's going to end up. I was in the thrift store the other day. I saw several AA talks and I looked through to make sure mine wasn't in there. So they have this not-a-band playing in this room and so I went to the not-a-band playing room for the birthday party entertainment and I was sitting next to a woman who was drinking a... I had a glass of beer. I won't say she was drinking it. She was mostly ignoring it. But she had a glass of beer and there was a keg of beer in the room. And, and it was a little keg of beer. I mean, that seems to me kegs of beers used to be big. This one was, it was just not very big. And I was watching it. And there were about 50 people at the birthday party. And people would come into the room. This guy comes into the room headed for the keg. I know he's headed for the keg. And I'm watching him. And he gets about halfway the keg and he, he runs into somebody. And starts talking. And they're chit 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 And they both turn and walk out of the room. He never got to the keg. And I'm watching and another guy sort of comes with a glass and he's headed for the keg. And he stops and starts talking to this woman and they're yakking, 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 yakking. And they danced and they talked and they left the room and he never went to the keg. And then this woman sitting next to me who's got a glass of... Beer that she's pretty much ignoring. I, I don't I think she tipped it over because it was empty after about two and a half hours. <laughs> and I said to her, could I get you another? She said, uh, no, I'm starting to feel it. I said, well, <laughs> well, that's the point. She said, well, you know, I really don't like the way it makes me feel. I said, well, you have to drink through that. I mean, it's. <laughs> next day I called my sister I said what are you going to do with that full keg of beer she said how do you know the keg was full I said because I washed it for four hours <laughs> and the reason I share that with you is that what I suffer from is alcoholism I don't have alcoholism I have alcoholism I'm the only one of those fifty people who was concerned about that keg of beer the only one of those 50 people who was focused on the alcohol nobody else I care it's, it's alcoholism and because I suffer from alcoholism I need to be here tonight is more than I needed to be here when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous I need you more tonight than I have ever needed you and because of that I'm grateful to be here and to have an opportunity to participate a little bit in my own recovery now, my sponsor always tells me that when I do this, I should tell you my name and tell you the truth. I've told you my name. I'm not so sure I'm going to tell you the truth. And the reason for, I mean, think about it. I don't know about you, but what it was like was never really important to me. When I was out there drinking, I didn't know that I was going to end up here. When I was out there, I didn't know the day was going to come that I was going to be expected to report to you what it used to be like. If I would have known when I was out there that I was going to have to report it, I would have paid more attention to my life. If I would have known about the fourth and fifth step, I would not have done some of the things that I did. But I didn't know it was going to be important, so I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. So a lot of what I share with you has been reported to me by other people, and I have to believe they're telling me the truth. They really didn't have much reason to lie to me. A lot of what I share with you is my perspective of what it used to be like. And I, I can only hope that it's the truth. I, the job I have, I had to have a fingerprint clearance, and I'm a really good, thing I fingerprint really well. I just roll really well when they're printing me. <laughs> and But I didn't want to raise any red flags as they were doing the printing. I'm rolling. I mean, I think they know when you print well that you've done it before, but... Very calmly, I looked at this woman and I said, how far back are you going to check? And she looked me in the eye and said, from the day you were born. And I thought, oh, this is like a fifth step, only it's in the wrong order, because they're going to know about it before I do. And uh, when read the report came back, the woman called me, and the, she's obviously not an alcoholic because she talked to me in that voice that non-alcoholics sometimes talk to us in, that like concerned voice, like I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I have some really bad news for you. Um, She told me that normally these reports were two or three pages long. She said, yours was 56 pages. (laughs) Do you want to come see it? Well, of course I did. And uh, I know a lot more about my story after reading that report than I knew. (laughs) I probably needn't tell you I was a blackout drinker. I, I love blackouts. I hear people in AA talk and they say, you know, and then I and then I lost six and a half minutes and it scared me and I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I I wish I could have a blackout sober. I love blackouts. There was nothing more fascinating to me than leaving work on September seventh, going back to work on September eighteenth, and realizing I'd been there the whole time in between. <laughs> I like that. There was something magical about it. Especially, you got paid, you know, the whole time. I really, the blackouts never bothered me. um, But they do make it difficult for you to know your story if you were a blackout drinker. And especially, I I sometimes make fun of Al-Anon. The only reason I make fun of Al-Anon is I have a resentment because nobody ever stayed with me long enough to qualify for Al-Anon. So I didn't have my own little personal reporter following me around to, to tell me what it used to be like. So this is the best. I'm going to tell you the best I can what it used to be like. I had my first drink of alcohol when I was 13 years old. I'm sorry I waited that long. But I didn't know what alcohol would do to me or for me. I um, My first drink of alcohol was I was on a beach in uh, just south of Oceanside in Southern California. We were on a camping trip. It was a group of girls We got into the tent that first night and we got into the tent and I had a bottle of vodka in my pillowcase and to this day I don't know where that bottle came from I've always believed it was by the grace of God but um, I can never be sure I remember pulling the bottle out I asked if anybody wanted it and they didn't and the reason they gave me for not wanting it is all we had to mix with it was grape soda and root beer and I said well so what and I took off the top and I drank half the bottle and I looked around the tent and nothing had gotten different and nothing had changed i drank the second half of the bottle and that was to be the end of my social drinking never again after that day did i ever offer anybody a drink out of my bottle and and i don't know about anybody else but i never had resentments until i came to alcoholics anonymous and one of my early resentments in alcoholics anonymous is i heard you talk about your first drink and you talked about taking it and you felt the warmth in your mouth and you somehow felt this magic as it went down and and you felt it when it hit your stomach and it hit your stomach and exploded it went to your fingernails and your toenails and your pimples fell off and you grew a few inches and you <laughs> dropped some weight and you became these wonderful human beings and uh, and that wasn't the case for me. I had my first drink of alcohol and absolutely nothing happened to me for about 15 minutes. And at the end of the 15 minutes, the only thing that happened to me is I had to go to the bathroom. And it's my belief tonight that if you were to drink a quart of anything in about 15 minutes, you would have to go to the bathroom. And so I got out of the tent and I shuffled down to the outhouse and I went to the bathroom and when I got done and went to get up I realized I was absolutely and totally 100% paralyzed to the toilet seat. I couldn't blink. I didn't feel my heart beating and I was overcome with a sense of fear. And of course the fear was that somebody else was going to have to come use that outhouse and there I was paralyzed to the toilet seat. Now. Later in my drinking, I did discover that two people can use the same toilet at the same time. If the second person is very careful about what they're doing, but I didn't know that at 13, so. I somehow, though, intuitively knew that the body was made up of energy, and I somehow figured this out, that if I could gather my energy, I would be all right. So I suppose it was my first formal meditation, because I sat, And I gathered my energy and when it seemed to be all gathered up, when it seemed to be all in one place, I just sort of fell off the toilet, out the door, into the sand and started crawling back to the tent. Now, of course, since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've discovered that my entire problem that night was my attitude. If my attitude would have been right, I could have had a fantasy. I was in the Marines as being dive bombed as I was trying to get back to safety. And if my attitude would have been right, it could have been a wonderful experience. Now, in my own defense, I always have to tell you that my pants were still down at my ankles. (laughs) I had started to get sick. I couldn't quite get through it. I couldn't get around it. And Under those circumstances, I think it's a little difficult to have a good attitude. I, I did somehow manage to get back to the tent. I fell in and I passed out. And when I came to in the morning, I realized nobody was in the tent with me and I couldn't figure out where they went until my eyes cleared enough that I realized I'd been sick all night long. I hit the top of the tent the side of the tent yeah like you've never puked <laughs> i hadn't missed the square inch and quite frankly i don't want to be in the tent either so i got out of there and and that was my first drink of alcohol and it was the most wonderful incredible marvelous fabulous magnificent spiritual experience i'd ever had and and it must have been because I put some amount of alcohol into my body from that day until the day I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't always get drunk. And I didn't always drink the kinds of things that you would classify as a beverage. I drank a lot of vanilla extract. I used to buy it by the six-pack. I drank a lot of mouthwash. I drank a lot of perfume. Taboo became my after-dinner drink of choice. I. <laughs> I still have a problem with it, and I'll tell you right now, if you're wearing it, I'm going to be laughing at your neck. I, I was in Kansas City a couple of weekends ago, and I wouldn't leave this one woman alone. And Somebody finally told her to stop wearing the perfume, and she'd be all right. But right. Um, I'm one of those folks, I'm often tempted to introduce myself and say, I'm Patty, and I'm a pig. Um, I came to your house and ate and drank everything in your bathroom and I didn't know that this was unusual I didn't know this was unusual I didn't know other people weren't living like this and and how would I know I mean how would we know that we're different than other people I was a, a bar drinker I was a living room drinker an alley drinker a dumpster drinker an office drinker. I, mean, I didn't specialize I just drank but I love bars I love sleazy sleazy bars and you probably have one or two here in Victorville um, <laughs> If not, I know you can go to Barstow and find one. But um... <laughs> I love those bars with sawdust on the floor. The mirrors are cracked. The upholstery around the bars ripped where people tried to hold on as they're falling off their bar stool. And they're full of smoke and they have that wonderful used booze-urine smell that I... I salivate still when I think of it. I love that smell. I have to tell you, some days when I'm in a, like a really cranky mood and I, at work, I'll just cruise over to one and just open the door and take a hit off of one of those places. It just uh, hurts me right up. Um, but I don't know how, in retrospect, I think about the quality of people who drank in those places. I mean, those sleazy dives had some really quality people in them. They had CEOs of big companies. They had bank presidents, neurosurgeons. I mean, that's what they said they were. I, and I never told a lie in the bar. I don't know about anybody else, but but we weren't sitting in those places having conversations like, well, what do you prefer, the red mouthwash or the green? Well, what's your preference, Chantilly or Aqua Velva? We weren't having those kinds of conversations, so it doesn't occur to me that I'm living any different than anybody else. I think I drink because I want to drink. I don't know that I don't have a choice. I don't know that at 13 years old I put alcohol into an alcoholic body and from that day on I had no choice. I think I drink because I want to drink. I don't know that I'm damned to live the way I'm living day after day after day after day. I think I drink because I want to drink. And I think everybody, I don't know, it's unusual. It's unusual. I don't know that i'm any different than anybody else i went to college i graduated from college with a 3.8 grade point average i'm a chronic hopeless helpless alcoholic i'm drinking on a daily basis and the reason i share that with you is it almost killed me in alcoholics anonymous because when i got here i told you i was too smart to be an alcoholic nobody with a 3.8 grade point average could possibly be an alcoholic i stayed in school and took classes for a master's degree because I'm one of those people, if I'm doing something well, I want to keep doing it. And I apparently do school well, so I I stayed. And I I left San Diego. Um, I had a job offer in Chico, and I went, was going to Chico, California, from San Diego um, for this job. I loaded everything I owned into my car, and I headed north. I got about 82 miles north of San Diego to Santa Ana. I'd only taken two cases of beer and two bottles of booze with me. So by the time I got to Santa Ann I was out of booze and I was thirsty. I pulled off the freeway and I have a sense I can find the sleaziest bar in town without even looking for it. I pulled into the parking lot of this place. I walked in, it was full of smoke, it had that wonderful smell. Willie Nelson was singing on the jukebox and I knew I was home. I sat down and ordered a drink and that's as far north as I ever got. About eighty two miles from where I started from. Alcohol had become my mother, my father, my god, my friend, my lover, my companion, my support. And at some point it had turned, I believe it was in the middle of my first drink. But at some point it had turned and began to strip me of self-esteem, self-worth, dignity, decency, honesty, pride. All the things we have going for us as human beings. And by the time I got here, it had taken it all. But by that point in my life, it already controlled every area of my life. Alcohol controlled where I would live and where I would work. People I would run with and eventually the people I would run from. And I didn't have a clue. I thought I drank because I wanted to drink. I didn't know that I didn't have a choice, I didn't know that I was damned to live that way day after day after day, whatever that way was. I, I stayed in Santa Ant, I went into the profession of my choice, I rose very quickly to the top and that too almost killed me in Alcoholics Anonymous, because when I came here I told you I was too successful to be an alcoholic. I told you about the big oak desk I sat behind. I told you about the trophies and the plaques, I was in the newspaper business and, and I know tonight it was because God gave me a gift, then I just thought I was damn good at what I did. but. I would come out of a blackout behind a podium in a room like this full of people holding an award not knowing if I was giving it or receiving it. <laughs> and so I would say thank you and I would go sit down and then somebody would elbow me and tell me I was presenting it to the Kiwanis Club and I'd have to get up and start over again and I didn't tell you about that. I just told you I was too successful to be an alcoholic. And it almost killed me uh, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, Because I was in the newspaper business, um, I I don't know if any of you know about the newspaper business, but newspaper people have to drink. Now, since coming to AA, I've discovered people who work at the May Company have to drink. Um, People who work at the gas station have to drink. Police dispatchers have to drink. I've learned since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous that pretty much every profession has to drink. But then I thought it was just journalists have to drink. We have to work 10, 12, sometimes 14 hours a day. I mean, really, really brutal work. We have to work hard all day long. And then when we finish work, we have to go to the bar. Because, you see, that's where the leads are. That's where the stories happen. And I have to tell you, I did get a lot of leads in the bars. Now the problem was is I would write the notes on those stupid little paper napkins. And then the glass would sweat. And the ink would run. And in the morning, I'd look at it. I couldn't read it. And I think, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go back again tonight. I hope that guy's there again. And I would have... And go so back and I did. I, I did break a really big story, a really huge story. I exposed uh, one of our school board guys, a married man, six kids. Um he was having an extramarital affair, which twenty five years ago was big news today. It's almost required, I suppose. but <laughs> it was big news then. and uh, and I exposed the affair. And it was um, I, we won a lot of awards for those stories. It was a series that ran for days. Never once in that entire time did it ever occur to me I was the woman he was having an affair with. Um, it's just just something about alcoholism it misses a few chairs on the way through, but um, but so I had to be at the bar and I had to be at the bar and I had to be at the bar and it was it was just my lot in life. I it was just a curse of, of my profession and. Um, And I have a reputation in Orange County as a violent drunk. I don't know I have a reputation as a violent drunk. I'm driving down the street and the light comes on behind me. I know what it means. It means pull over. There are people in AA who think that means put the pedal to the metal and take off like a bat out of hell. I know what it means though. It means pull over. Light comes on, I pull over. The officer walks up, the first thing I do is slam my car door open and try and knock off his private parts. Men are a little particular about their private parts, So as that door flies open, he jumps back. And when he jumps back, it's really a good thing because now I can get him in focus. And I'm thinking, one a.m., one of me. One a.m., one of me, I think I can take him. One a.m., one of me, it looks like a fair fight. One a.m., one of me, I think I'll try and I go out in the car for him. And it's a pretty fair fight for a minute or two. But you know what, he's got a friend back in his car and the friend has a radio and the friend calls some more friends and pretty soon it's six of them one of me well it's not any fair anymore I say uncle and away we go and I do that the next time the light comes on I pull over the officer walks up I slam my car door open try and knock him in the private parts he jumps back I get him in focus I think one of him one of me one of him one of me I think I can take him one of him one of me I think I'll try and I go out the door for him forget about the friend with the radio and the friend's friends and pretty soon it's four of them one of me it's not fair anymore and I do that three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve times the insanity of my disease is I do the same thing over and over and over and I think the results are going to be different this time I'm going to get them I never remember the guy with the radio I was speeding a couple of weeks ago I wasn't the fastest car on the road though I, I'm holding on to that one I was not the fastest car on the road I got pulled over light comes on I pull over and I'm looking out my window in my little rear rear mirror over here looking waiting for him because I'm ready to tell him I wasn't the fastest car on the road and I'm looking for him to come walking up all of a sudden I hear this on the passenger which scared me to death and I, I what are you doing over there and I I have electric windows it doesn't take much to amuse me and I rolled up and I said what are you doing over there and apparently they've learned something they've, <laughs> he told me I was speeding I said I wasn't the fastest car on the road I was speeding anyway he gave me a ticket so I was on my way to meet with my boss, so I went ahead and went to the meeting. Of course, now I'm in a rain. I've got my underwear in a knot because I haven't had a ticket in 23 years. And um, I go in there whining about the ticket, and my boss says, Okay, look at it. You drive a green um, Camry, Toyota Camry. You're elderly. you know." You know. <laughs> Cops driving down the road. He picks out the car that he thinks the person in it's not going to shoot him. That's why he pulled, that's why he pulled you over. So, of course, I go to court on it because I'm, I'm not the fastest car on the road. I'm going to court. So I go to night court in Pomona. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Pomona, but do not go to night court in Pomona. It is very scary there. And um, everybody who was pleading guilty got to go first. So all, they all went first. Me and this other guy are sitting there, because we're, we're not guilty, boy. We're, we're taking it to jury trial. We've already discussed it. So he calls me up and he says, you know, he does his little thing, and, and I'm telling him, I'm not the fastest car on the road. Were you speeding, Ms. Ochoa? But I wasn't the fastest car on the road. Were you speeding? I, he, so he sends me to go sit down to think about it. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I have what I know is a moment of clarity. Because I'm sitting there and you know what? I have this thought. You are not bigger than the rules. You see, and I do it and I know other people and Alcoholics Anonymous do it. Every once in a while I think, well, I'm not drinking. I should be able to blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm not drinking. They should blah, blah, blah. Every once in a while I think I get this award for living my life the way most people live their life every day every once in a while I think I get this prize because I'm not drinking like a pig today and the truth is I'm not bigger than the rules the rule says 65 miles an hour I was going 80 I should have been going faster if you're going to get a speeding ticket make it worthwhile I was going 80 I'm guilty It was very simple. But see, I labor, I suffer from alcoholism, and my ism, every once in a while, makes me think I'm bigger than the rules. They should give me a break because I didn't drink today. And I know, I mean, I I deserve, I deserve, I know what I deserve. I deserve two days in the electric chair. That's what I deserve. The prize I get for not drinking alcohol is I get to live my life is a responsible human being. And part of being responsible, duh, means following the rules. The rules apply to me. Now that irritates me. But that's the truth. The rules apply to me. I haven't sped since then. I want to tell you something. I don't know how many of you are avid non-speeders. But I have not sped since I had this moment of clarity. I have had more people flipping me off on the freeway <laughs> as I am attempting to drive 65 miles an hour. They, I'm, in the, I'm in the slow lane with all the big trucks, <laughs> and they're coming, flying up to my rear end, zooming around me, flipping me off, cutting in front of me, slamming on their brakes. They are irritated at us that drive 65 miles an hour out there. But All right, I'll get off of my speeding soapbox. Um so, so i I came to alcohol I'll come i am having a hot flash, excuse me. I Which you probably don't need to know about me, but my god, I think being a woman and being fifty is like purgatory or something, but No alcohol's bad enough, try no estrogen. It's just <laughs> I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of my 12th drunk driving assault, which is what they do when you jump out of the car and try and beat They put an assault charge. They don't even care that the police officer won. They put an assault charge on it anyway. And when you do that, you get a reputation as a violent drunk. And um, I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous after my 12th drunk driving assault. And I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but they didn't get their underwear in such a knot about drunk driving um, in, in up until the early 1970s. They didn't really... I mean, okay, they took my, my driver's license away for life. Well, who needs that to drive? I mean...
1: <laughs>
0: I can drive without it. I can't cash a check very well, but I can drive without it. And... <laughs> But they weren't quite, they just didn't quite get as upset. Suddenly in the early 70s, they started getting upset about it. And because of my record, they were, they were threatening to put me in prison for 10 years. I have things to do and I have a life to live. I don't think 10 years is, uh, I don't think it's reasonable. And in the middle of sentencing me, the, the expression on the judge's face changed. The tone of his voice got different. He looked at me and he said, I know this won't work for you but I'm going to offer you an alternative. And part of that alternative was meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I wish I could tell you that I left the courtroom. I came here, I looked at the 12 steps. I knew they were the solution to the problems of my life. I worked them all in the first week and skyrocketed to recovery, but, and I would tell you that if there weren't people in this room that knew me, but, uh, (laughs) but that's not my story. I drank for three more months. In retrospect, I can tell you that I drank with a sense of urgency and a desperation that I had never known. I didn't drink a greater quantity. Physically, it would have been impossible to drink a greater quantity of alcohol. But I drank with a sense of urgency and a desperation that I had never known. And on October 4, 1975, the day before I was to go back to court to tell the judge what I was doing with the alternative he gave me, on that day, I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I didn't know what A was. I thought it was something like the PTA or Parents Without Partners or... Or something. I mean, I had never, as far as I know, I had never heard the words Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and that first meeting was a Sunday night. It was a speaker meeting and it was about as big as this, as this group. And uh, I can't tell you who talked that night, but I heard two things. I heard we don't drink between meetings. And I quickly looked around the room and I didn't see any of you drinking in the meeting. And I thought, if you're not drinking in the meeting and you don't drink between the meetings, when do you drink? It made me really nervous. And the other thing I heard was that the answers were in that book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So after the meeting, I stole the book. I mean, God knows I need to have the answers. And I can't tell you how irritated I was when I got home. Not only could I not find the answers in that book, I couldn't even find the questions. And I thought, oh, dear God, I've stolen the wrong book and I'm gonna have to go back and get the right one. And and I'm a thief. It's so humiliating for a thief to have stolen the wrong book. Now, I don't really think I'm a thief, but my sponsor thinks I'm a thief and she had explained it to me because. I think it's important to have a sponsor. I think it's critical to have a sponsor. I think it's really important to have a sponsor who's not emotionally involved in your life. Now, it irritates me, but my sponsor has a different perspective of my life than I do. And her perspective of my life includes such things as, I'm in a bar drinking, it's 2 o'clock, it's time to go home, I find some keys on the bar, I go find the car that they fit, and I drive myself home. My sponsor and the San Diego police think this is grand theft auto. I think it's alternative transportation. I mean, I just need I just need to get home. My disease manifests itself in justification, rationalization, and denial. And whatever it is I do, I can explain to you why it had to be that way. And as I'm explaining it to you, I'm hearing it. And as I'm hearing it, I'm believing it. I think it's alternative transportation. I just need to get home. And, uh, but I'm a thief, and it's humiliating for a thief to have stolen the wrong book. So I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the answer book. That's all I came back for. It's the only reason I came back. If it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have come back. I don't think it matters what brings you back. I think what's important is that you come back. You see, because if I hadn't believed I got the wrong book, if I hadn't thought I needed to come back to get the answer book, My plan was to go back to court the next day and tell the judge, he didn't know what he was doing. Why did you send me to a place where people didn't drink? Why didn't you send me to Sears School of Safe Driving? I'll take the 10 years. I don't know what I would have said to that judge. And by the grace of God, I didn't have to find out. Because, you see, I knew I had to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the answer book. And that's what brought me back. And I don't think it matters what brings you back. I think what's important is that you come back. I don't think it matters what your motive is. I don't think it matters what your intentions are. I think what's important is what your action is. And the action is I came to another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and my second meeting was Wednesday. It was a small discussion meeting. And in that meeting I heard if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it. And I looked around the room and I looked around the room and I looked around the room and I could not figure out what it was you had that was so hot that I should be willing to go to any length to get it. I mean, think about it. Look at the person next to you. Unless you're sleeping with him, what is it? I mean, I... And then I saw him. And I truly believe there's a him for each of us. This guy was a skinny little fellow. He was bald-headed. He wore baggy pants and a thin belt. He had tennis shoes on with no shoelaces. But the holes were there where they should have been, and he nodded out during the meeting. And I figured he was shooting heroin. Folks would shoot heroin, nod out and I can probably do this thing and not drink if I can shoot a little heroin <laughs> so I found out where he worked and the next day I snuck down to his office and I said Dick I have to do this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous to stay out of jail and I don't know how to do it and he told me if I would go to meetings and read the book and talk to other alcoholics and not drink he said, I guarantee you, you won't get drunk and if you don't get drunk your life will get different and I'm grateful he told it to me that way he didn't tell me my life would get better he didn't tell me my job life would get better, my finances would get better, my family life would get better, my relationships would get better, my sex life would get better. He didn't tell me any of it would get better, and I'm grateful. Because none of it has. It's a, little, it's a little hope for the newcomer. But but it's all gotten different. And as I stand here tonight, I can tell you from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I have never had it so good. You see, I don't know good from bad for me. I'm going through something I think is good for me, it generally turns out to be bad for me. And I'm going through something I think is bad for me, and it generally turns out to be good for me. And I don't know good from bad for me. I've gone through times in my sobriety where I have lost everything. I've gone through times sober, I've lost jobs, I've lost relationships, I've lost stuff, and it has seemed to me that God, like, brought me that far and then took off the ten to one of you and left me. And I don't drink and don't die and don't drink and don't die and don't drink and don't die and get far enough beyond it to in retrospect see that it had to be exactly that way for God to move me to where he'd have me be. You see, every time I have thought my life was falling apart, what was really happening is it was falling together. And it had to be exactly that way for God to move me to where he'd have me be. When I think about things that have happened in the last 23 years that I thought were horrible when they happened, that I thought were terrible, that I didn't think I could live through, that I thought that if there is a white light, it's a train. Um, all of those times that I have thought were so horribly bad and terrible, I didn't drink and I didn't die in every one of them. I can look back tonight in retrospect and see that it had to be that way for God to move me to where he had me be. So I don't know good from bad for me, but I know different. And every area of my life is different than it was the day I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have never had it so good. And that old man I thought was shooting heroin, he was sober longer than I'd been alive. And the reason he nodded out in meetings is he had a peace inside. He had a serenity, he had a rightness inside that I didn't have a clue as to what it was. He was okay with us and he was good with God and he was good with himself. And as a result of that, inside him was something that I I couldn't have even guessed what it was. Um, and I believed him. I don't know why I believed him, but I believed him. I had the books every I'd open it to Chapter 3, and I'd read the line that says, Most of us are unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics. I'd say amen and close the book, and that was reading the book. I'd go down to the Canyon Club in Laguna Beach where they have AA meetings. I'd have a cup of coffee on the way out. I'd say, Hi, Jim, to the manager. He'd say, Hi, Patty. That was talking to another alcoholic. My court program said I had to go to two meetings a week. I thought that was really obsessive. But I was willing to go to any lengths to stay out of jail, so I went to those two meetings. And the only thing I did right is I didn't drink. And I didn't drink, and I didn't drink, and I didn't drink. And what happened to me—I pray God happens to anybody um, who comes to everybody who comes to Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, because not drinking and not recovering—I did that day after day after day for eight and a half months. I didn't drink, but I wasn't recovering, and I just didn't drink. And eight and a half months of not drinking and not recovering. I was in a pain that I have never been in before and, by the grace of God, I have never been in since. There has been no pain in my life greater than the pain that I was in when I was not drinking and not recovering. I know no greater pain. And the, that pain at eight and a half months away from my last drink drove me to my knees. And eight and a half months away from my last drink, I took the first step of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. I admitted that I was powerless. Now, whenever I do battle with alcohol, I lose. When I drink alcohol, I'm damned to live the same way day after day after day. I had a lot of successes in my life. They were all fueled by alcohol. And I had a lot of failures and they were all fueled by alcohol. In every area of my life, alcohol controlled. Whenever I drink alcohol, I lose. Whenever I get into the ring with alcohol to fight it because you're drinking it, I lose. Whenever I do battle with alcohol, I lose. And that was the powerlessness and that was the unmanageability. And it took eight and a half months of not drinking before I saw the evidence of that. Eight and a half months of not drinking, I, up until eight and a half months I believed I drank because I wanted to drink. I didn't know that I didn't have a choice. I didn't know that at 13 years old I put alcohol into an alcoholic body and from that day on I had no choice. I thought I drank because I wanted to drink. Um, what happened for me is the 12 steps to recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous was on October 4th, 1975. To where i am tonight except for the power and the magic of the 12 steps there's absolutely no way to get there i told you what i the second step for me the insanity of the disease for me is how i think and i don't have a problem with god well yeah, i do i have one problem with god i believe we are all god's children and i have always wanted to be an only child that's that's the only problem i have with god but I'm a loner by nature and I want to tell you my experience is Alcoholics Anonymous does not change your nature. What Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is it's given me the power, the courage and the strength to act contrary to my nature. But it doesn't change my nature. I'm a loner by nature. Left to my own devices, I like to read. I like to fish. Well, I like to throw and reel. I'm not real big on catching because then you have to touch the fish and they're really kind of smelly. But. Um, I like to be by myself. My my favorite place is on my couch. I think being with me is great company. I have no problem being with me as my only company. You know if you're a loner if you don't like AA potlucks. That's generally the indicator. (laughs) But the book talks about that we become disgustingly, even dangerously antisocial. I don't know if I became that way or started out that way, but... I have no social skills. I have one. I used it really early this morning with Claire in the hospitality suite so I'm fresh out for the, for the rest of the day. I mean, And so if you're a loner, if your nature is a loner, being a loner for me in step two when he said came to believe a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. For me, the power greater than myself was not God. If I had come to believe that God was going to restore me to sanity, I'd have sat on my couch. God would have flown in, sprinkled me with sanity, taken off to wherever it is, God hangs out. And that would have been the end of it. I would be home tonight watching Touched by an Angel. Um, so for me, I had to come to believe that the power greater than myself was the action. Step 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. That somehow through taking the action of the steps, I would be restored to sanity, which for me is right thinking. You see, I have lived my whole life trying to think my way into right living. I am an avid thinker. I have always been an avid thinker. I'm an avid thinker tonight. I'm talking to you. I'm thinking about something else. (laughs) Then I start thinking about the fact that I'm thinking. Then I start thinking I shouldn't be thinking what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking what I'm thinking that I shouldn't be. Then I try not to think about what I'm thinking. And I'll tell you what, I'm grateful I don't have a loudspeaker on my head that everything I thought came barreling out I mean that would be truly humiliating but I came to believe that by taking the action the steps that my thinking would somehow be in line with the rest of the world instead of trying to think my way into right living what it came to believe is I could live my way into right thinking to take in the series of actions laid out in the steps I would be restored to right thinking and I'm, I'm pleased to tell you that's happened for me doesn't mean I don't think but I don't have to act on everything I think. I'm an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic. Every once in a while I have a thought that a drink would be nice. I like old movies. I like really old movies. And one of my favorites, I don't even know the name of it, but I, the, this anorexic looking woman with these really large breasts um, sitting on a, on a fur rug in front of a fireplace, roaring fireplace, this little bulbous thing of colored liquid, I suppose it's wine, a long cigarette thing holder. And I look at her, I think of that and I think Well, I could probably do that I could probably drink like that Because I've been restored to sanity What comes right behind that is the truth And the truth is, if I wore that dress I would fall, My breast would fall out of it It wouldn't be a little bulbous thing It would be a gallon jug over the shoulder And I would be falling into the fireplace that's the truth, and that's the return to sanity thought that comes right behind, well, I could probably drink like that. I have a thought a drink would be nice. I clap. I say, thank you for your participation. I just go about whatever it is that I'm doing. I don't have to take an action on those thoughts. Because what I came to believe in step two has become a reality as a result of working the steps. Step three, I, I, I just had a woman tell me this the other day. I sponsor a woman who's having tells me she's having a struggle with the third step and I've shared this a whole bunch of times this woman's having a struggle with the third step and she tells me that she made it you know and she says, Hadio, every morning I get up and I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of God but by about noon I'm running my will and my life again by about noon I'm thinking I'm in charge of it and I'm making these really unhealthy decisions and so then you know the next morning I get up and I turn my will and my life over the care of God but oh, sometimes by 10:30 in the morning I'm like running it again I'm making decisions I'm, and I've shared this a bunch and I was like the first time I've ever gotten to do it I said hey come with me and I plopped her in my car and I'm driving down the street and we're coming up to a signal and I said okay now we want to go to so-and-so how do we get to so-and-so so we got to turn right at the light I said okay I'm gonna make a decision to turn right at the light and I went through the intersection and I said darn it and I made a U-turn well, I didn't really say darn it but I made a U-turn and I'm coming back to the light and I said, okay, now how do we get to so-and-so? She said, well, you have to turn left. I said, okay, I'm going to make a decision to turn left. And we went straight through the intersection. And I made another U-turn and I'm going back again. And she said, we turn right. And I said, okay, I'm making a decision. We went through and I made a U-turn. She said, we turned left. I said, okay, I'm making a decision. And we went through. And she's getting really T would And so I said, okay, now what do we do? She said, You have to turn right and when you turn the effing steering wheel I said, oh, so what you're asking me to do is take an action to implement the decision I've been making You want me to turn the effing steering wheel I turned the steering wheel and we made a right hand turn I said, do you get it? The decision is important, the book says it Although the decision is vital, it has very little permanent effect unless immediately followed by action The decision that you're making, the decision that you're making is fine, but if I don't take an action, we're still going to be making you turns up and then you're getting angrier and angrier. And the action is the fourth step. The action is the fourth step. Now, I'm a writer by training. Of course, I've drank myself out of that profession. I forgot to mention that to you. forgot to mention that to people in AA when I first got here, too. The only thing I've wanted to do since I was in the fourth grade was be a writer. I had an opportunity to go into that profession, I gave it up for one more drink. dragged myself out of it. I've given everything up for one more drink. I forgot to tell you that when I was new. Um, but I'm a trained writer. I think writing the inventory is for those of you who aren't writers. Those of you who had no creative writing skills probably need to write an inventory. Brush up on your creative writing skills, but I don't have to do it. And I didn't 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 do it. And something happened to me because I came into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in pain. I sat in the middle of you and felt isolated and alone. I felt different. I felt unique. I knew there was no sense sharing because you weren't going to understand anyway. And I left in more pain than I came in with. And I came back the next night in pain and sat in the middle of you. And felt unique, felt different, felt isolated. Knew there was no sense sharing. You weren't going to understand. And I left in more pain than I came in with. And I did that night after night after night. Until the pain of being with you was so great that I knew I had to leave Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't stay here in the kind of pain that I was in and I decided to leave and on my way out of the door that night I had one of my thoughts and the thought was before you leave Alcoholics Anonymous why don't you try writing an inventory so I went home and did my four step the way the book says to do it I made the columns I wrote down everybody who I resented which basically turned out to be everybody who breathed air that I thought should have been mine Wrote down on the second column what they did to me. Well, I wanted to tell you all my life what they did to me. I was having a really good time. I was sorry I waited this long. I was just... <laughs> Third column, how it affected me. Well, it affected my self-worth, my security. Well, no wonder I drank. If all these people did all these things to you, you'd have drank too. Well, you did, but... <laughs> and then in my zealousness, though, I accidentally turned the page to the big book. And after... Yeah, uh... After it shows the diagram, two pages later hidden in the body of the text it says referring to our list again we put out of our minds the wrongs that others had done and we looked at our part well now it wasn't any fun anymore but I did that I did that with my resentments, my fears and my relationships and for the first time in my life I saw who O was but you see I've spent my whole life putting on a show for you and I had come to believe the show and when I did that I finally for the first time I saw who I was and then I looked at the fifth step and I thought it was cute I thought it was, I'm raised Catholic. I thought the fifth step was for those of you who aren't Catholic, you need this experience and uh, then you can know it doesn't work the same as we do. And and I wasn't gonna do it. I put my fourth step in the trunk of my car, however. I lived alone, but didn't want anybody to find it. So I put it in the trunk of my car and I drove around with a sense of impending doom. And of course the fear was I'd be rear-ended on the freeway. My trunk would fly open. My fourth step would be everywhere and I put my first and last name on every page of it. And I could just see it all over the freeway but I chose to drive that way for a long time and then one night I was in Los Angeles visiting a friend of mine and we were talking and as we were talking I realized I was doing a fifth step and I thought well if I'm going to do it I'm going to do it right and I went to my car and got my fourth step and I did my fifth step with her and it seems to me and this was just my perspective that people hurt me all my life it seems to me that people let me down and you disappointed me and you were never there for me and as a small child I had made a decision that I didn't want to be hurt anymore I just didn't want to be hurt anymore and so as a small child I began to build a wall to keep you out and I built a really big brick wall that kept you out I know tonight there were people in my life who tried to love me and I wouldn't let them I couldn't let them I had to keep them away I couldn't let you love me because you were going to hurt me and I kept people out this big big brick wall that kept you out and when I did my fifth step that brick wall didn't fall down when I did my fifth step one brick came out of that wall but every time I'm shared with another alcoholic, another brick has fallen out of that wall. Until tonight, I have no brick wall between me and you. Well, I have a little styrofoam thing that I throw up sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I get scared. Sometimes, You know what I thought, and I may be the only one in Alcoholics Anonymous who thought this, but if I think it, it's true. What I thought was, I thought if I worked these steps hard enough, with enough zealousness, if I really, 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 really work these steps, I would somehow skyrocket above humanness. I would just sort of float up here. I would never feel fear. I would never feel insecurity. I would never feel any of the feelings that I judge as bad. I would never feel them. I would just be up here. The truth for me in working the steps is I've come into my humanness. The truth for me is I've become come into my I guess I hear people say it. If you have faith, you can't have fear. I think that's poop. I have a tremendous amount of faith but I'm a human being and as a human being I sometimes have fear and when I have that what I do though is I reach out to you and you take my hand and you give me the courage and strength I need to walk through it as a human being I sometimes have insecurities you know I used to when I was drinking I'd be driving to work and I would have a thought today's the day they're going to fire you today's the day they're going to find out you can't do your job and I would get so angry I would start swearing at them in my car how dare they fire me? Don't they know how valuable I am? Don't they know their whole company's going to go down the toilet if they get rid of me? Blah, 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 blah. And I'd pull into a bar and I'd walk in and I'd start telling the bartender about those lousy SOBs that I used to work for and how they're no darn good and their whole company's going to go bankrupt and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I'd order a drink and another drink. And I would never even get to work to get fired. <laughs> Today I have that thought. Sometimes I'm driving to work and I have that thought Oh my God, today's the day they're going to fire you Because I'm a human being with insecurities And I don't know why when it's my sponsor's problem It's very, very serious When it's my problem she laughs at me (laughs) But I call her up and I tell her Today's the day they're going to fire me She said, Honey, you just go ahead and go to work After they fire you, give me a call (laughs) Duh (laughs) And I go to work and they don't fire me And you see I need you more tonight than I have ever needed you It takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to continue to choose to recover And I don't have it So I come here and after the meeting we say the Lord's Prayer The person on one side gives me a little courage The person on the other side gives me a little strength And you give me the courage and strength that I need In order to continue to choose to recover We're human beings, I I believe we're human beings having a spiritual experience And we come here together to do it of myself, I'm nothing. By myself, I can't do it, whatever it is. We can do what I can't. I cannot continue to choose to recover. It's too hard. Sometimes it's too hard. Sometimes you're just asking too much. Sometimes I'm too afraid. Sometimes I feel too insecure. And I come here and we can do it. We can do what I can't do. If you're here tonight, stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when we pray at the end of the meeting, we always say, keep coming back. I always say, don't go away. It works better. Just don't go away. Now that you're here, don't go away. Get the courage and strength you need to continue to choose to recover from the person next to you tonight. And if we can all do that, well, i will be back tomorrow. And that's what I learned. And that's what I learned in the process of doing the fifth step. I came into my humanness. I became a human being. That wall between me and you isn't there anymore. Um, and I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous for that. I came here to stay out of jail. That's all I wanted. And if I'd have had it my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. If a single day in the last 23 years I'd have had it my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. There's a God that has a plan for each of us, beyond our wildest imagination. I have a really wild imagination. Beyond my wildest imagination, all I need to do is not drink, show up, and live life to the fullest. Step six and seven, I went home and did them by mistake. I didn't mean to recover this quickly, but um. <laughs> I just opened the book and by coincidence opened it to the part where it talks about steps six and seven and it's real short and I got lulled into reading. and It was kind of poetic. And when I became aware of what I was reading, I was in the middle of the seven-step prayer. When I became aware of what I was reading, that prayer took the longest journey anything ever takes for me, the journey from my head to my heart. When I finished reading that prayer, what it says in the book happened to me. I walked through the archway to freedom. I walked away from the person I have been all of my life to start to become the person God intended for me to be and I believe that's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. We tell people don't leave before the miracle happens and we sometimes don't tell them what the miracle is. The miracle for me is we have an opportunity to walk away from the person we've been all of our life to start to become the person God intended for us to be. The best I've ever described myself when I came here was an animal with latent human tendencies. That's what walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. But because you've been willing to share with me and because the steps work, I've become very kind, very loving, very gentle, very caring, very compassionate. Of course not to tell me it's codependency and I have to recover from it, but.
1: <laughs>
0: I love the person who I am. I'm tempted to write a book, Women Who Love Themselves Too Much. I love... I love the person who I am. Steps eight and nine for me are conventional ways of getting rid of conventional guilt. I felt guilty because I was guilty. I did a lot of things to a lot of people for one more drink. I gave up everything for one more drink. I pushed away everyone for one more drink. I felt guilty because I was guilty. And what you shared with me, you didn't tell me you showed me by the way you lived your life. What you shared with me is that the eighth and ninth steps were more than just saying sorry. I said sorry all my life. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You told me that the steps were about living my life differently. You told me really rude things. You said to me, we don't care how you feel, we care what you do there's no chapter in the book in the feelings there's a chapter in the book in the action you didn't seem to care how I felt you didn't seem to care what any of my intentions or my motives were you seemed to care about what I did and you didn't expect me to be able to do it by myself you showed me how to do it you taught me how to be a daughter you taught me how to be a sister you taught me how to be a mother you taught me how to be a friend um, you taught me how to be an employee. You taught me how to do all those things because you let me watch you be daughters and sisters and mothers and friends and employees. And you told me that when I made my amends I had, to, I had to live my life differently. I had to act as if I was a daughter and a sister and a mother and employee and a friend. And I would get really confused and I would make really big mistakes. I would get really uncomfortable particularly with my family. I think families are tough. I would get really uncomfortable and I come running back to you and you would share more with me you would share your experience, strength, and hope um, with me about being being all those things. And I, I would go back and I would go back and I would go back. And I, it took me 15 years of living my life acting as if I knew how to be a daughter and a sister before I got right with my family. I always thought my family was dysfunctional. And the truth was, is I was the dysfunction. I was the one who didn't know how to be in that group of people. And every Sunday for 15 years, I went and spent this day with my family before I got right with them and I was a sister and I was a daughter and um, a couple years ago I was out of town on business and I got back I flew back into Ontario and I just got into my car just got in my car and my pager went off and I have a pager I used to wear my garage door opener so I looked important but now I have a (laughs) and the pager went off and the message just simply said call your brother and I when I read the message I knew my mother had been sick for a number of years and and um, when I read the message I knew and I called my brother and my mother had passed away about the time I landed and I, you know when I got that news I I, I missed my mother and I grieved But I didn't have any of that horrible remorse I didn't have any of that regret I didn't have any of that I wish I could just see her one more time why couldn't she have waited till I got there I just need to tell her I love her I just need to say this I just need to say that I just need to do that. I didn't have any of that because you taught me how to be a daughter because you taught me how to get right with my family. Because you taught me how to be okay with my mother. Um, I was right with my mother, and I still miss her. And I still, um, there are times that I think about something and I want to pick up the phone and call. I don't have any of that horrible remorse and that, and that, um, that comes with when we lose people when we're not right with them. You shared with me how to get right. I am right as far as I know tonight with every person in my life. And I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous for that. I just came here to stay out of jail. And I have gotten so much more. Steps 10, 11 and 12 for me are the recovery steps. They are the steps that allow me to continue to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous. They are the steps that give me the privilege to come here and to sit with you and to take your courage and take your strength so that I can continue to choose to recover. Steps 10, 11 and 12 I look at like going to the main company. I go into the main company on the first floor. I want to go to the second floor. But I am really pretty lazy so I go immediately to the escalator. I always go to the escalator that's coming down. Now, you can get from the first floor to the second floor on the down escalator, but you got to keep moving. And 10, 11, and 12 keep me moving up the down escalator. If I stop using them, I don't hit bottom right away, but I start going down. And if I don't start using them pretty quick, eventually I'm back where I started. So they keep me moving up the down escalator. 10 says the process is powerful. Keep using it. Keep writing about it, talking about it, ask God to remove the defect, make amends when necessary, and then turn your attention to somebody who can help. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? My experience is when I have a problem, and I have a lot of problems. Now, they're quality problems, but they are still problems. I mean, they're way different quality than I had before I came to you, but I still have problems. Life still does not always unfold exactly the way I think it should. I still go through times that are hard. I still go through times that are painful. I still go through times that I don't think are fair. The difference is I'm present. The difference is I get to experience it. But I have problems, quality problems, but they're problems. And when I'm having one of those particular quality problems and I am focused on that problem and I am going to fix that problem and I am going to take care of that problem and I am going to, it's my problem, it's my problem. God can't do a thing with my problem. When I ignore my problem just for a second and pay attention to you and what is it I can do for you and how can I be of service just for a second take my mind off of my problem God can swoop in and start to begin to take care of the problem for me. The process is powerful keep using it. How, what is it I can And you don't have to like do big deal things. Big deal things. I, my home group I am the greeter at my home home group. Nobody My home group is a very sick woman's meeting in Laguna Beach. I go there because I look healthy but um, that's my commitment meeting. I won't do anything else on Thursday night. Um, rarely, rarely, rarely will I do anything else on Thursday night and I greet everybody who comes to that meeting whether they want to be greeted or not. That's my, that's my big deal commitment. Um, you can be of service doing a lot of things. Setting up meetings, tearing down meetings. I used to do that when I was younger now I'm way too old to carry chairs. Um, GSR, intergroup, there are a lot of ways to be of service. Um, What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? It seems to me, and the book says it about a bazillion times, that that's the thing that will save the day. Step 11 for me, I'm a simple person. My prayer in the morning is very simply, Thy will be done. And I am so naive that I truly believe the rest of the day is God's business. My job is to not drink, show up, and live life to the fullest. The rest of it is God's business. My prayer at night is a lot, lot more intense. I offer it to any of you that would like to use it. My prayer at night is, dear God, please have people treat me tomorrow exactly the way I treated people today. And when I know I'm going to say that prayer tonight, it will hold me in good stead. When I know I'm going to say that prayer tonight, it will keep me from flipping people off on the freeway. It will keep me from being really rude to um, clerks at grocery stores. It will keep me from doing um, things that I don't want done to me. When I remember that I'm going to say that prayer tonight, dear God, please have people treat me tomorrow exactly the way I treated people today. It will hold me in good stead. And step 12 is the greatest gift you've ever given me. The opportunity to take a little of my past, the opportunity to take a little of the incomprehensible demoralization, a little bit of despair, a little bit of the degradation, and to give it to another alcoholic and say, Honey, you don't have to live that way anymore. Take my hand, come with me, sit in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you don't have to live that way anymore. A day at a time, stay with us. Take the courage and take the strength that you need to continue to choose to recover, and be present as life unfolds in front of you. My life today is phenomenal. I have a job that I really, really love in a field that I never wanted to work in, and I'm really good at it. I have, um, I'm a, I'm a welcome member of my family. Uh, my son, some of you know my son. My son is doing well in Northern California today. Uh, he's his mother's child um he spent a little bit of time in jail right near the christmas holidays because he really didn't think he needed to take care of that court stuff it would just somehow you know that magical thinking oh if i ignore it it'll go away um and he was in jail just before christmas and he wanted me to see him and i didn't want to i didn't feel like it my sponsor lovingly said i don't care how you feel um but right now tonight he's doing well and i know that god has no grandchildren i know that That my son is God's kid, and he knows where you are. He's been raised here. When he's ready for you, he knows where you are. And I just, uh, I just ask you to say a prayer for him when, from when we talk about the alcoholic who still suffers. If you just um, say a prayer for my son, but I'm the best mother I've ever been. I'm the best friend that I've ever been. If I had an opportunity, I would be the best lover that I've ever been. No, No, that wasn't a prayer, it was a statement. Um, My life today is full beyond my wildest imagination, and if I'd have planned it, if God had let me have it the way I wanted it, I'd have shortchanged myself. Because I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous for anything that I have in my life today. I came here to stay out of jail, and I'd have shortchanged myself day after day after day after day. I'm going to end with the story of the man that goes to see St. Peter and he asks St. Peter to show him heaven and hell. St. Peter takes them to a room and it says hell on the door, but they open the room and it's a banquet. Tables and tables and tables of food, any kind of food you'd ever to think of as much food as you could ever imagine. And the people in that room sitting amongst all that food are starving. And the reason that they're hungry is they have those long wooden spoons that people who cook, cook with, tied to their hand and the spoons are just a little bit too long and they can't quite get the food to their mouth. And so they're sitting amongst plenty and they're starving. And that's how I was before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was out there amongst plenty and I was starving. And they took them to a room marked heaven and inside that room was the same thing. Tables and tables and tables of food, as much food as you could ever imagine. Any kind of food you'd ever want. And the people in that room had those long wooden spoons tied to their hands too and the spoons were just a little bit too long and they couldn't quite get the food to their mouth. But the people in that room were full and they were happy and they were content. And the difference was was that one man was taking a spoonful of food and he was feeding the man across the table. And he was taking a spoonful of food and feeding the person next to him. And she was feeding somebody else. And that's how Alcoholics Anonymous works for me. I don't have my own answers. I have to come here and I have to let you feed me. And if I'm lucky every once in a while, I get to give a spoonful of this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous to somebody else. And you don't have to have a year or five years or ten years. If you have one day, you have something to feed to the man or woman walking through the door. If you have one day, you have something to give to the person sitting next to you, whether they have five years, ten years, thirty years, fifty years. If you've got one day, you've got the courage and strength that the person sitting next to you needs in order to continue to choose to recover. If you have one day, you have something to give to another alcoholic. When I was four days sober, an old man told me if I didn't drink, I wouldn't get drunk. And if I didn't get drunk, my life would get different, and he didn't lie to me. And I always end with the line in chapter 5, and I end with it because it's been my experience. And I pray, God, that it's your experience. The line in chapter 5 that says, there is one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. Thank you.